Good morning. Good morning. This is a great day. Today we get to do one of the most important things that the local church does, and that is install a new elder to our elder team. Which we'll, yeah, exactly, which we'll do at the end of our service. But we're very, very excited about welcoming Dave Hubbs onto our elder team this morning. In 2 Samuel 6, there is a great story that I think is instructive for what we want to talk about this morning. It's the story of a man named Uzzah. Great name, right? Uzzah and his tragic interaction with the Ark of the Covenant. Let me give you a bit of a con- a bit of context for it. More than 20 years before the story we're going to talk about, the Israelites had grown unfaithful. They had broken covenant with Yahweh, and so God had given them over to their enemies, the Philistines. Not only did the Philistines defeat the Israelites in battle and kill 30,000 of their soldiers, imagine that, but the Ark of the Covenant was captured in that battle, and it was taken back to the Philistine city of Ashdod. Now, you have to understand, we talk about the Ark of the Covenant, a lot of us, the only thing we know about it is from that movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? We're not talking about some token religious icon that had been stripped from God's people. We're talking about the ark that represented the very presence of God amongst the people. And so at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Bible says, in reference to the fact that the ark had been taken away, it says, the glory had departed from Israel. What a tragic day. Now, not surprisingly, the ark didn't last long in Ashdod. Its presence in their land created nothing but havoc for the Philistine people and for their false gods. And so the rulers of the Philistines, who were so happy at one point that they captured the ark, began to shift it around to other cities because it was creating trouble. So they sent it first to Gath and then to Ekron, and nothing but panic and disease ensued. So they finally said, we have got to get rid of this thing, and they put it on a cart and attached uh, two cows to the cart, and they pointed the cows towards Israelite territory and said, get out of here, go. And eventually those cows ended up in a place called Beit Shemesh. And from there it went to, the ark went to the house of a man named Abinadad. And it was guarded carefully there, forget this, 20 years. It sat in the house of Abinadad. Now we come to the story that I want to talk about this morning in 2 Samuel. And now King David has come to power. He's 30 years old. He has now conquered the Philistines in battle. And he has conquered the city of Jebus and renamed it Jerusalem. And he has his capital city, and he believes now is the time to bring the Ark of the Covenant up from the house of Abinadad and bring it into his new capital city. So this was to be an incredibly meaningful act. It demonstrated a humble people that were coming back to their God, a humble people that were now welcoming the presence of the Lord back in their midst. But of course, moving the Ark of the Covenant was no simple task. You could simply ask the Philistines about that, and they would tell you. And so what the Israelites did, they very carefully, and I'm going to give you an image to help you understand what this might have looked like. They very carefully loaded the ark onto a brand new cart, and they hitched a pair of oxen to it, and they stationed two of Abinadad's sons on each side of the ark to walk beside it. And as the Ark, as the cart is traveling down the road, you have, to see, you have to understand the celebration. The people are dancing and they're singing and they're rejoicing. This was a huge day, the return of the Lord to the midst of the people before King David. And then suddenly, in the, right in the middle of all that celebration, everything goes silent. Everything goes silent. One of the two men beside the, the cart, this man Uzzah, suddenly drops dead. That's a party killer, isn't it? 
when you're having a great time and there's dancing and singing, all of a sudden, boom, this guy goes down, never to breathe again. Well, what had happened? As the cart was moving over uneven ground, apparently the oxen had stumbled, and Uzzah, on the side of the ark, thought it was going to tip over, that maybe the cart would end up falling into the mud, and so he reached out his hands to steady it, and in that instant, he touched the ark, he was struck down by the Lord. It's a terrifying story, is it not? And it's designed for that purpose, so that we might fear the Lord and understand his holiness. Now, many years before that, God had commanded that nobody was to ever touch the ark, ever. And he'd given people, his people very clear rules about this, how they were to handle it, how they were to transport it, how they were to take care of it. And the party, or the, or the part of the family who were dedicated to guarding the ark, Uzzah was a son of Abinadad. He knew the right way to handle it. This was rule number one. You use the poles to lift it, you transport it on a cart, but you never, ever, ever do what? Touch it. David knew this, Abinadad knew this, and Uzzah knew this as well. So he is without excuse. He is without excuse. The ark was an utterly holy object. The earthly location of God's presence, it had been set apart from human hands. R.C. Sproul actually does a great job describing the fatal mistake that Uzzah had made. Here's what he says. In that instant, Uzzah believed that his hands were less filthy than the mud on the ground. Let that sink in. In that instant, he believed his hands were less filthy than the mud on the ground. But think about it. Mud is just mud, right? Mud doesn't sin. Mud doesn't chase after false gods. Mud doesn't turn its back on God. Uzzah was a sinner like you and me. His heart was not pure. His hands were not clean. And so God's wrath came down upon him. And so here's the big idea for today. There is a righteous demand for justice wherever and whenever sin takes place. And as we know from our own earthly legal system, which is very finite and very flawed, but we know this as well, for justice to prevail, a righteous punishment is required. And God's just punishment for sin is made visible in the outpouring of his, key word for today, the outpouring of his, his wrath. His wrath. Grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 1. Today we take a, a new step in our journey in the book of Romans. So far we've covered just the first 17 verses. We've got a long way to go. And those 17 verses have been important. They've covered Paul's introductory comments, his greeting. And we come now to verse 18, and we enter into what we call the first of five books within the book. Five books within the book, and this is a heavy one. This is what we call the book of sin. In fact, I'll give you the list. We talked about this in our introductory message Really, Romans can be broken down into five books within the book. First of all, the book of, of sin, then salvation, then sanctification, then sovereignty, and finally, service. Paul's exposition of sin is going to take us from today's verse, 118, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. So we're going to be here for a while. Now let's back up to verse 16 and just catch the flow of what Paul's been saying here, because... As we talked about last time, 16 and 17 are very, very important to the whole theme of the letter. Verse 16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And we talked about last time that comes from the book of which, which Old Testament prophet? Well done, Habakkuk, very good. So here Paul's laid out his thesis for the whole letter. The power of God to save sinners is seen and heard in the gospel, and it's taken hold of, it's appropriated by faith and by faith alone. And clearly Paul wants to lay out for these Roman believers all of the details, all the beauty of this gospel of God's righteousness. And now what's interesting is if you real quickly flip over to chapter 3 and look at verse 21... And that, and that verse opens up the second book, the book of salvation. Look at the language that you see in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Look at the language there. See how it's, it's really a continuation of chapter 1, verse 17. Some of the very same phrases are present. We see righteousness of God twice. We see by faith, just like we saw in chapter 1, verse 17. So you could easily move from 117 to 321 very seamlessly. And you could see Paul just doing that, describing the gospel. But first, and this is the big caveat, first, Paul says, no, no, no. We can't just jump to that. We've got to walk through the book of sin. We've got to do the hard work of walking through the book of sin. Now, some scholars, I think wrongly, have talked about 118 to 320 as something like an interruption in Paul's flow of thought or a parenthesis in Paul's thought. The best way to think of this book of sin is as a necessary preparation for the good news that's going to come beginning in chapter 3, verse 21. You see what I'm saying by that? We talk a lot here at Oak Hill about how before you get to the good news of the gospel, you've got to deal with what? The bad news of sin. And so we see that laid out for us here by Paul. Before Paul can prescribe the remedy for mankind's problem, first he's going to lay out the indictment. So here we go. Turn back to 118. And let's look at 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are, what, without excuse. So here's our goal for this morning. We are simply going to ease into the issue of God's wrath. In fact, we're not going to cover a whole lot today at all. I, Grant can testify to this, that my progression in my preparation this week was very interesting. I started out early in the week, and I said to Grant, I said, we're going to do verses 18 to 23, and then by Wednesday, it was down to 18 to 20, and then on Friday, it was 18, and then yesterday, I texted him, I said, how about the first half of verse 18? Um, and so, and sometimes that's the way just God works. You know, those of you who preach, you just know sometimes that's the way God works. He puts that on your heart to slow it down and to take smaller bites. So today, I'm calling this prolegomena on the issue of, of God's wrath. And that's just a fancy word for some introductory remarks on the issue of God's wrath. We're going to ease into it and talk in a general sense about wrath. Now, before we dive in with both feet, I want you to stop for a second and I want you to seriously consider what we mean when we say 
the wrath of God. I want you to really think about the images that come to your head and your heart as you think about God's wrath. And I want you to think, especially in light of the story of Uzzah that we just read, have you considered the biblical truth about your sin, how it necessitates God's wrath, and how much grace you've received? It's one of those subject matters where we don't often stop and say, hey, we really need to just kind of sit in that and, and really process through what that means, the wrath of God. Now, this is one of the most controversial topics that you can do in theology, the wrath of God, especially if you're talking to unbelievers out there. Most of humanity, most of the people that you might bump into on the street, they are, they are willing to talk about the existence of God. They are often happy to talk about the love of God, but they will always run from this subject, the wrath of God. And yet we know that wrath and judgment are consistent themes that run from Genesis to Revelation, right? In fact, wrath is a defining characteristic of who our God is. But it's still hard and it's still controversial because it flies in the face of American culture. Most of the people that you're going to meet on the street will tell you that human beings are just more evolved animals. We are, we're just at the top of the evolutionary ladder and that we're basically good. And really that the goal of life on this earth is nothing more to, than to find happiness and personal fulfillment. Now Paul says, of course, no to all that. He says, no, we're created in the image of God. We're designed to worship and enjoy God forever. That's our highest purpose. And yet what do we do? We live in rebellion. We live in rebellion. And so for every human being, there is a righteous demand for justice. There is wrath. We have to deal with that today. That's, that's just a reality of humankind, corrupt and guilty before a holy God. Now, some of you are already thinking, I, 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 can, I can sense it in the audience, like, really? Are we going to be talking about sin and guilt for the next six months? <laughs> I mean, is this really where we're headed? Yes. No, I'm just kidding. Not for six months, okay? We're not going to go this slow throughout the whole section. But, but yes, in the sense that there's a good reason for it. And I want you to trust me in this. As one of your shepherds, I want you to trust me that it's profitable for you to walk through this. And let me give you three quick reasons why it's important and why it's profitable for you to not just jump into the beauty of the gospel and all the, the happy news without stopping and really going deep to consider the book of sin. The first one's the most obvious. Number one, if you want to find a true remedy for a disease, you need to have more than a superficial understanding of that disease. That's why... Doctors who work on, on, on curing cancer spend all their time studying what? Cancer. So we need to have a deep understanding of the disease that has infected all of humanity. Number two, in a practical sense, understanding sin and wrath will make you wiser in the knowledge of your soul, both your soul and the souls of others. Understanding human nature is an important part of being a good minister of the gospel. If you know your soul better, you know human nature better, you'll have a better chance to fight against the sin that is raging within your flesh, and you'll have more wisdom and more insight when it comes to counseling others who are struggling with sin. If you run away from the study of sinful human nature, if you say, look, I just don't want to deal with this, then really think about it. You run away from yourself, and you run away from wisdom. So we need to enter into this. Number three, knowing the nature of sin and wrath is going to cause you to cherish the gospel even more. Amen? 
Two sides of a, of a single coin are true about this. Without a deep knowledge of our condition before the holiness of God, the cross is not going to make sense. If we don't have a deep understanding of the problem, the cross is not going to make sense. But if we do have a deeper understanding of it, then our appreciation for the cross, our gratefulness for the mercy and grace of God is going to abound all the more. Those are good reasons to enter into the book of sin. The late Leon Morris, who is a great New Testament scholar, he puts it this way, and I think this is a great quote. He says, unless we hold that men really deserve to have God visit upon them the painful consequences of their wrongdoing, we empty God's forgiveness of its meaning. Agree? He continues on. When the logic of the situation demands that he, God, should take action against the sinner, and yet he takes action for him, then and then, then alone can we actually speak of this thing we call grace. So my hope for us as we work our way through this book of sin over a number of weeks is that we'll strive to avoid just a superficial understanding of the diagnosis of our, our human problem. And that we'll not be afraid or turn away from cultivating a deep understanding of our fallen nature and how much we really do deserve God's wrath. And that that will drive us back again and again to the necessity of the gospel, the glory and the joy of the gospel of God's righteousness. That's why Paul puts it here at the outset of his book because he says, walk through this, walk through the pain of it. I know it's not easy, but when you walk through it, you're gonna have a greater appreciation for the good news. Amen? Amen. Now let's make sure we truly understand what God's wrath entails. What exactly is wrath? Let me give you one scholar's definition of wrath. God's holy, white-hot hatred of sin. The reaction and revulsion of his holy nature against all that is evil, and in particular, against those human beings who stand opposed to him. Take a look at that definition. His holy, white-hot hatred of sin. Give you a great example of this. There's so many passages in the Bible you could go to to say, well, let's see God's, let's see God's wrath clearly described. But one of the places I always go to, and, and it's not the most widely read book, is the book of Nahum. And Nahum has some very powerful things to say. Let me put some of it on the screen. This is the very opening verses of the book of Nahum. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Look at some of the, some of the language in this particular passage. The word jealous. Now when we hear jealous, what do we think? We think bad things, right? Because we attribute, we have this, this human version of jealousy which always seems to come out in very unhealthy ways. But that word in the holy sense is God forever protecting his own glory. God always protecting the faithfulness of his people. We see the word avenging, again, not in the human sense, in a sinful way, but in the holy sense that God always repays those who are guilty. He always repays, has vengeance upon those who deserve punishment. His vengeance is part of his perfect justice. 
We see the word anger in there. Now, we have to keep this in mind. Anger is not necessarily a bad thing, right? There's a righteous anger. And when we think about this, we always think about Jesus in the temple, right? He's turning over the tables of the money changers. You're like, wow, look at mild Jesus. He's, he's tossing things around. He has a zeal for the purity of his father's house. And so that anger is righteous. It's a righteous passion. So yeah, God is righteously angry about sin. And then you see in here the references to his power. Things like the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds, all of creation stands ready to obey God in terms of pouring out his wrath. He is not just a holy God, but he is an incredibly powerful God. Now, some people are uncomfortable with this. Even people in the church today, they're uncomfortable with this type of language. They really struggle. And sometimes somebody will admit it. You're talking to a younger believer and, and they say, look, I really have a hard time believing in a God of wrath. It's not something I want. I want that God of love, but not a God of wrath. And one of the classic evangelical cliches that you see posted all over Facebook and all over the world is this whole idea that God, what? He hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. You see it all over the place. And the fact is, there is some truth to that. There's definitely a half-truth. God does hate the sin, doesn't he? He hates sin utterly, completely, eternally. But it's not correct to say that God has nothing but love for the sinner. Does he love the sinner? Absolutely. Enough to send his son to die for the sins of the world. But it's not correct to say that he has nothing but love for the sinner. Because in scripture, I'll tell you, just in the book of Psalms, you will see something like 15 times how the wrath of God is hanging over the head of the sinner. That God hates the sinner. He hates the liar. He hates the adulterer. In the New Testament, Jesus said in John 3 that anyone who does not obey the Son son, has the wrath of God abiding on him. We're told in Ephesians 2 that the sinner is by nature an enemy of God and the object of what? Of wrath. So we have to be careful with this. If you're uncomfortable with this idea of God being a God of wrath, I want to challenge you to think of it this way. Here's a really good question. You say, Jeff, I see what the Bible says. I'm still uncomfortable with it. I just don't like the idea that God responds to sin with wrath. I want to challenge you by asking this question. How would you like God to react to sin if not with wrath? Is there a better alternative that you can think of for the God that you worship? Not wrath, but some other way that he might respond. I'll give you a couple of options. What if you reacted to sin with laughter? Would that be preferable? Most of you would say no. What if he was apathetic towards sin? He just said, I don't care. I mean, I, it's the whole deist thing. I, I created things. I, I see that people are in chaos and they're, they're killing each other. Not my business. Is that the way you would want God to respond to sin? Or what if God just looked the other way? He said, looked down and he said, look, I know the person's hurting that person. I don't care. Not interested. Is that the type of God that you want? Obviously, the answer is no. Sin is worth hating. Sin is worth hating. Sin is worthy of just punishment, even my sin, even your sin. If God didn't respond to sin in wrath, if he didn't pour out his wrath for sin, we would rightly judge him as unjust, wouldn't we? We'd say, that's not a just God. That's not a God worthy of my worship that he would be apathetic towards sin, that he would be complacent about sin, that he wouldn't care, that he would look the other way. Just say, I'm going to overlook that. I don't care that you got hurt by it. I'm going to look the other way. 
That's not a God worthy of our worship. You and I should desire a God who is full of justice and wrath. Let me share two quick misconceptions about God's wrath. Two things that oftentimes people hold to or they question. I just want to set the record straight on these things and help us to settle some issues if they're in our hearts. Number one, sometimes it's said that God's wrath is overly cruel. It's just too much. Hell, for eternity. It's, it's, I, I just can't, I can't believe in a God that would do that. That's why so many people today, the Rob Bells of the world and others, even leaders who are turning away from the idea of hell and saying, well, I see it in the pages of Scripture. I just don't believe that my God would do that. That's becoming more and more common as the apostasy takes place in the world today. Is God's wrath overly cruel? And the problem with this is too many people associate his wrath with human wrath or human anger which is usually arbitrary and mean and cruel. And yes, God is angry over sin, but get this, it's not an emotional anger. It's not a blind rage. God's not out of control up in heaven because he's so angry at the sin of mankind. It's a perfectly righteous anger. It's not emotional. Get this, it's judicial. God's anger is not emotional. It's judicial. It's measured, it's just, and it's proportionate to the offense. Now, I realize some people struggle with that issue. I've had many debates, unfortunately, on Facebook, but other places as well, sometimes face-to-face with people that are like, the proportionality bothers me. Why? Why have to go to hell for all of eternity? It seems overly cruel and unusual. Well, folks, this is not a new objection. In fact, way back in the 11th century, there was a scholar by the name of Anselm who wrote a, a work called Cur Deus Homo, which in Latin means, why the God-man? And he dealt with this very issue, and to me it's still the most compelling argument for proportionality that I've ever heard. And here's the basis of it. The degree of punishment of a person is commensurate with the intrinsic value of the being that's been offended. Do you hear me when I said that? The degree of punishment is equal to the intrinsic value of the being that's been offended. So, for example, on your way out today, if you step on a bug and kill it, what will be your punishment? It's a bug, right? Its intrinsic value is extremely low. There will be no consequences in your life. What if you you drive out of the parking lot and you strike a dog and hurt it? Okay, now you might be in more trouble, right? Now you might get sued by the owner, whatever it might be. Why? The value of the dog is greater than the bug. Now, go out and strike a human being. Okay, may, what, one of your, your fellow children of Adam, you go out there and you punch them or you, let's just say you kill somebody. Punishment goes up, doesn't it? You might spend the rest of your life in jail. You might go to the gas chamber for that. Why? The intrinsic value of the human being is greater than the dog. Now, now, what if you've offended an infinite, almighty, eternal being? That changes everything, doesn't it? The punishment is going to go up. Because the sinner sins consciously, he must face punishment consciously. And because of the intrinsic value of God, the sinner has committed an infinite, eternal offense. And they must face the punishment eternally. Guys, that's just a simple assessment of the never-ending vastness between us and God. And so the proportionate punishment for one who lives in rebellion to God and rejects him is an eternal punishment. 
God's wrath is not overly cruel. Second misconception that's out there, sometimes we ask this question, is God's wrath inflicted upon ignorant or innocent people? And the idea that goes with this, this is the old, well, what about the native on the island that we've never reached type of argument? You've heard this before, right? The idea that if, that if God inflicts judgment on people, you know, who would have chosen him? They would have chosen him if they'd only had the option or if only, if only God had given people more information, then they would have made the right decision. What we're going to find out next week as we get through the rest of this passage is that that's, that's just an incorrect view. There's plenty of data out there for people to acknowledge the existence of God. God has made it plain to them everywhere they look. And so there is nobody innocent. Not one of us. Nobody will ever be able to stand before God and say, but Lord, I haven't earned your punishment. That will never happen. We've all earned his wrath, from the least of us to the greatest. So God's not cruel. Not cruel in his wrath, he's not arbitrary, and his wrath will never be poured out upon somebody who is ignorant or innocent. Does that make sense? Nod your head if you're with me. Good. Okay, so let's go back to verse 18. We actually are going to look at a verse here. Sorry about that. Just a little bit. How is God's wrath being revealed today? This is really a key question that comes out of 18. Look at it again. For the wrath of God is what? Is revealed. Manifested. Poured out. It's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Now what does that word mean? It means a lack of reverence or honor or respect towards God. And unrighteousness. What is that? That's acting in a way that is unlawful or unjust. So let me summarize that. The wrath... Wrath is determined for those who refuse to give God the honor that's due him and for the actions that flow out of that lack of honor, which is any violation of his law and justice. God is pouring out his wrath on that, and rightfully so. Now, we need to take a look at the the tense of the verb revealed here in this verse. This is the Greek verb uh, apokalupto, and it's written in the present tense, meaning it's referring to a continuous action. It's being revealed. This wrath is being revealed. So what Paul is saying is this. God's wrath is being poured out right now, and it's being continually revealed. That means every moment that you're out there in the world, you should be able to look around and say, yep, the wrath of God is being poured out. I see it. It's all around me. Notice also the parallels between 17 and 18. This is really important. 17 says the righteousness of God is being revealed. 18 says the wrath of God is being revealed. Interesting. So the revelation of wrath, get this now, comes from the same source as the revelation of righteousness. That is the preaching of the gospel. Hear me then that. The revelation of wrath comes from the same source as the revelation of righteousness through the preaching of the gospel. So here's the thing. Whenever the message of the cross is preached, or whenever you're out there sharing the message of the cross with the people in your lives... We have the revealing of a righteousness from God in that message that can be appropriated, grabbed onto, taken hold by that unbeliever. And by faith, they can accept that, make it their own, and be justified and saved. Isn't that great? But at the same time, when the message of the cross is preached or shared, we also have the revealing of God's wrath against sin. And the fact that it's being poured out upon all those who will turn away from the message, who will reject it and walk away. 
So the bottom line is, guys, when you're sharing the gospel, there's a lot going on, isn't there? You're passing a, here's the message. By the way, here's God's love and his salvation, but here's also his wrath. Do you understand that both are coming from the same place at the same time, all centered in the preaching of the gospel? That's powerful. That's why we have the Great Commission, right? We're, out, we're able to, sit, to bring that same message of both love and salvation and wrath and punishment. That's our job as missionaries. Now, this begs the question, in what practical ways is God's wrath being poured out? What does that look like? And there's actually a number of categories. It's not a simple answer, but let me give you a few categories of how God's wrath is being revealed today. First of all, there's what I would call common wrath that just falls upon humanity just by the virtue, by virtue of the fact that we are sinful beings living in a lost world. There's all kinds of common results that come from the corruption of this creation. Physical death, for example. Right? Physical death. Human beings die. Why? Because of sin. It's a part of God's pouring out of wrath. All forms of universal misery and suffering that have come upon us. Violence and war and terrorism and disease and poverty. All these types of things. That's just a common part of God's wrath. Futility in all of its form. The fact that we, we experience, and say amen to this, frustration in our lives every day. Just things aren't going right. Right? Things are messed up. This constant frustration that we, that we live with is part of common wrath. The disgrace, the degradation of human thinking and behavior, all the nonsensical things that we see, the immoral behavior that's going on all around us, this is all part of common wrath. Guys, these things are common to the sons of Adam. And unfortunately, for those of us who are found in Christ, we're subject to it as well, right? The rain falls on both the, the righteous and the unrighteous. We're, we're stuck in this lost world even those who are in Christ. But in the meantime, all those things, we don't view them the same way that the world does, do we? Yeah, physical death is coming. 100% guarantee, unless the Lord comes back, that we're going to die. We're going to experience that part of, of God's wrath. But for the believer, we don't fear death, right? It's the gateway to paradise, so we see it differently. Misery and suffering. What does the world do about it? Complain and grumble. What are we supposed to do about it? Embrace it. It's the pathway to greater perseverance and maturity. Daily frustrations. People get angry all the time. What are believers to do? Practice the fruit of patience and compassion, right? And in terms of the downward spiral of human behavior that's going on all around us, we can sit there and grumble about it, or you know what we can do? We can say, man, I see that in the Word. That's all been prophesied. We should expect that to happen. And we go back to the Word and we say, man, the Bible speaks to the truth about human nature. I trust it more and more. I trust in the sovereign plan that God has for this world. It's right there in black and white. So there's this common wrath. The second way that wrath is being poured out is what we call cataclysmic wrath. Things that just burst out suddenly upon the world at various times and in various places. Think about the flood in Noah's day. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. But there's all kinds of historical occurrences, earthquakes, floods, and fires, times when entire populations have been wiped from the face of the earth. And I think it's interesting, by the way, you can ask him about this. In the land of insurance, the world of insurance, what do they call things like earthquakes, floods, and fires? Acts of God. The world does that, right? That's, right, Kim? Yeah, the irony of it all, right? Cataclysmic wrath that gets poured out upon the earth. A third one is just simple sowing and reaping. 
sowing and reaping, where we experience the consequences of our, of our sinful choices. And guys, these things are built into normal, everyday human life. As we dabble in sin and violate God's law, there are going to be predictable results. Have you guys experienced this yet? I'm going to dabble in the sin. I'm going to consciously play around with this, and I'm going to expect no bad consequences from it. It doesn't work that way, does it? If we're going to, if we're going to sow disaster in our lives, and then we reap negative consequences later, we should expect that. Sometimes those things happen immediately. Sometimes it builds up over time and we experience it later on, but there's always going to be consequence for sin. And lastly, and this is really where Paul is going to focus in in the verses to come, we have the wrath of abandonment or the wrath of the giving over of human beings to their sin. It's something we're going to talk about in detail over the coming weeks, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But later in this chapter, Paul is going to, he's going to describe for us how when people refuse to honor God, when they practice unrighteousness, when they turn away from all the evidence that God has given him, that he is there, and they begin to worship other things, they say, Lord, I see it, I'm going, to, I'm going to seal my mind against it, and I'm going to worship other things that I think are more tangible, that bring me more happiness. What does God do? He gives them over to all kinds of negative things. He gives them over to impurity. He gives them over to degrading passions. He gives them over to a depraved mind. And because their thinking becomes corrupted, and because their behavior grows more and more wicked, they end up living out a life that I mean, it's the type of stuff you turn on the news and you can't believe this is happening. It's because God has given them over. This is the wrath of abandonment, and we're seeing it all around us today. So the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven right now, continuously, upon all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Look around today, tomorrow, and you'll see it happening. So as we wrap up, let's come back to our friend Uzzah. Remember Uzzah? In light of all that I've just shared, here's here's a key question. Did God act too strongly against the sin of Uzzah? The answer is no. We might think so. We're like, oh, he just touched the ark. Come on, God. The answer is no. And God wasn't the least bit unfair either. The only unusual thing about God's wrath on Uzzah was the swiftness of it, right? That it happened right there at that moment. But keep this in mind. The Bible does say many times that God is slow to anger, right? But over time, the Bible says that mankind is storing up wrath each and every day. And God can kindle his anger very, very quickly. Think about the day of the Lord, this great and awful day that's going to come. Mankind is storing up wrath. And God is slow to anger. He's giving people time to repent. But at some point, he is going to kindle his anger. And it will come very very suddenly, like a thief in the night, right? And it will be with fire, and it will be with fury. So here's my biggest concern for you guys, as I take just a deep breath. My biggest concern in this series, as we look through this, is that we might not take this seriously. My biggest concern for me and for you is that we might not take this as seriously as the Bible describes it, the wrath of God. That we might check out. That we might say, look, I've been in a Bible teaching church for so long. I've heard all this stuff before. There's nothing new you can tell me, Jeff. And it's very possible, even in a church like ours, 
where we talk about this stuff a lot, it's possible, listen to this, possible to think too lightly of God's holiness or to think too little of your own sinfulness. Both of those are dangerous. To hold on to some smug sense of pride that I'm okay because I've got my life squared away on the outside. It may mean that we don't really fear the Lord as we should. That we really haven't taken the time to, to take uh, the, the roots of our, of our walk and to go deep into an understanding of his holiness and to go deep into our own, our own hearts, into the darkest place of our hearts to deal with who we really are. Because really that is the fear of the Lord, is it not? To understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of ourselves. Perhaps the best antidote to that, if I was going to give you something to read, it'd be go to Isaiah chapter 6. Reread it over and over again. See how Isaiah, the prophet, the great prophet, how he responded when he came face to face with the glory and the majesty and the power of God. Was he smug and self-righteous? He said, no. He said, woe is me, I am ruined. Why? Because my eyes have seen the Lord. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm an unclean person and I've seen the Lord. I am ruined. Isaiah understood the fear of the Lord in that moment. And we need to try to grasp it. Look, I'm not saying we're going to get a vision of God's throne room, right? But we need to try to grasp the seriousness of this issue. To be a human being who sins against God is not merely to make a mistake. Or to mess up. Oh, I just messed up. Oh, I just made a mistake. It's much more grave than that. In reality, to sin against God is to willfully, knowingly, Declare your independence from him. To say, I got this, God. I'll do it my way. To declare that you want God to move over so that you can sit on the throne and be your own God. To commit treason against the king of the universe. To reject his goodness and his mercy and his grace. To despise his holiness. To be deliberately unholy in the face of all of God's holiness. So today, if you walk away with something, here's a good one. See the horror of Uzzah's sin and see the horror of your sin as well. See it for what it really is. Here's what Paul would say based on our our passage. He would say the gospel of God's righteousness is necessary because the wrath of God is being Revealed from heaven against all of my ungodliness and my unrighteousness. I need righteousness. Did you know that? You need righteousness. But you don't have it in and of yourselves. You need another to give it to you. Is there hope? Is there hope? Is there? There is hope. The gospel is the power of God to justify and to save because in it the righteousness of God that you need is revealed. And his righteousness can be imputed to you by faith. It's not just the problem. Look, we're talking about the problem. That's great. But never take your eyes off of verses 16 and 17. It's the remedy. Four quick summary points real fast. God's wrath is just and proportionate against your sin and mine. God's wrath is to be feared, is it not? Why? Because God will do what he says he will do. He will punish every sin. 
Every sin, think about that. How many, as billions of people that have lived on the earth, every sin will be accounted for. His wrath is to be feared. Third, God's wrath is a manifestation of his love. Whoa. I bring this up now, and we'll talk more about it in the future. This is a hard one for us to grasp. But God is love, and God does all things for his glory. What that means is, is that he must act justly to judge every sin if his glory is going to be upheld. If his glory is to be upheld, he must judge righteously. So it's God's love for his glory that motivates his wrath against unrighteousness. And we'll explore more of that to come. We don't take God's love and God's wrath and bifurcate them and separate them and compartmentalize them. They're all essential attributes of who God is. And lastly, you ready for some good news? God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. Woo! God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. This is a great place to end. Because of the sacrifice of the Savior at Calvary, because of the sacrifice, listen, God can justify and save dirty, rotten sinners like you and me. Isn't that great? God has done what we could not do. He has done for us the very thing we didn't deserve. And so I'll leave you with this thought. Do you want to see God's love? Look at the cross. Do you want to see God's wrath? Look at the cross. Let's pray.